0: that anything is possible. It feels so good to be in the house of the Lord. It's so good to see each of you. They uh, made a mistake on Wednesday. They said that there was an exciting um, surprise of a guest speaker. He was unable to make it, but I'm glad to be here this morning and uh, sure have missed each of you. Um, If I've not met you yet, I get to call your pastor, my dad, and your pastor's wife, my mom to be with them we're glad to be closer in Cincinnati now and that's a blessing to us that is a blessing to us and um, I'm not a stranger so I'm not going to try to impress you today um, I am going to try to read the word of God and uh, I'd like to invite you to Jonah and if you uh, if you ever want to impress somebody by by saying you just read a chapter of the Bible, Jonah's a good choice. It's about two and a half, three pages. Let's go to the book of Jonah. Hey Amen. Wasn't there a beautiful spirit of the Lord here this morning? I'm thankful that the Lord is here. You know, be seated. Seated. I seated. Um, many of you know this story, and I don't want to belabor the point this morning. There are many of you that are excited to see CeCe Winans this evening. And um, I'm not going to read a text this morning. I am going to read Scripture as I preach. Um, most of us are, are, are pretty familiar with the story of Jonah. And if I were to ask you to recite the story of Jonah... Um, the emphasis of the story of Jonah seems to be on the whale. And this is kind of obvious. Um, in the story, it's probably the most shocking element. And so we, we remember the story of Jonah by the shocking element that, that Jonah was cast into the sea, swallowed by a whale and and spat up um, in Nineveh um, where he was called of God to go and to proclaim the message that the Lord had given him. And it's a simple story. There's a lot of um, profundity in the story. That's a fancy word for saying it's got a lot of good stuff in it. Um, We know that Jesus is the better than Jonah and, and what we mean by that Is that as Jonah went into the belly of the earth For three days That Jesus went into the belly of the earth That's when he was in the tomb And he overcame death, hell, and the grave And when we read the scripture We're not reading individual stories That are separated We're reading of accounts That showcase man's shortcomings and testify of Jesus and so when I read the Bible I don't want to be like David David had some good things and there's certainly some things to be admired about David Um, but if you have read the story you know that there are some things about David that you don't want to be Um, Jesus is the better than David um, Jesus' kingdom is eternal. And David's kingdom was not eternal. Um, we look at the account of, of David and Goliath, and that's not a story about um, how that I am to be like David and overcome my giants. Um, that's a story about how Jesus is the greater than David that overcomes every giant. And so when we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, if you want to understand the Bible better, you just got to understand that each story, if you look for the testimony of Jesus, you will find it. Um, The rock that water came out of in the desert, that's not the story of a rock. That's the story about Jesus who, who gives life in desolate places not what I'm preaching about today, but I'm preaching that to preface the story of Jonah and telling you that there are elements of the story of Jonah. You know, we can if we read Bible exclusively and you just hear a story about a man being swallowed by a whale, that can be a little hard to understand. But we've got to understand that the Bible is a three dimensional book and It testifies of things that are to come and testifies of things that had been. And when we're reading the story of Jonah, we're not only receiving a testimony of Jesus, but we're also, it is also revealing the human shortcomings of man. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, I'm not trying to be a perfect person because I'd fail. I'm trying to be like Jesus, and and through Jesus, he can make me perfect. And so when we investigate the story of Jonah, we're, we're, we understand that he's called to Nineveh to deliver a message of repentance. Um, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. These were the enemies of God. And um, he thought he was smart. And take note today that, don't be like Jonah. Um, He he really thought that he could run from the plan and the purpose of God. He went to the absolute farthest extreme, um, as far in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He went to um, the scriptural tongue twister Tarshish. And he believes that he's removing himself putting distance in between him and the plan of God. And the Sunday school version of it um, that we grew up hearing about uh, the reason that um, he didn't want to go to Nineveh, oftentimes we, we have a simple understanding that Nineveh was a wicked place. Um, I, 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 I sort of thought growing up this wasn't the responsibility of my Sunday school teacher. This was the responsibility of my imagination um, I imagined Nineveh as just this really run-down, dirty, filthy place that nobody wants to visit. And so my Sunday school imagination was that he didn't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh was ugly. Nobody wants to go to ugly Nineveh. Um, and and so today I, I ask you to ask yourself the question, and some in this place um, would be able to quote the later passage that tells us exactly why he didn't go to Nineveh. But ask yourself today, what's your understanding of the reason that Jonah didn't go to Nineveh? And so we know the story. He ends up on this ship, and a storm comes. And it's interesting because these these, um, men that were in charge of the ship, they were likely pagan. Um, they were not prophets of God, certainly. Um, they were probably what we would call today, uh, roughnecks of sorts. And, um, in the midst of this storm, they had enough sense to understand that someone on the ship needed to repent. And we find the prophet of God, Jonah, sleeping in the bottom of the ship. Um it's an interesting passage. Um, if anyone should have understood the reality of what was happening and the necessity for repentance, it should have been Jonah. And so they wake him up. He fesses up to his sin. And in order to survive the storm, he volunteers himself, um, order for the survival of the other men on the ship, he volunteers himself to be cast into the ocean. Um, There's about three times in the book of Jonah that Jonah asks God to kill him, Um, and uh, this was one of those times. Uh, He was not expecting to uh, be able to swim to shore. He would rather that God kill him than carry about the purpose of God in this account. And we wonder, that sounds so... That sounds so strange. What was, what was Jonah's difficulty with Nineveh? And he's, of course, swallowed by the whale. I'm glad that God always have a, has a means of escape. And um, he's swallowed by the whale, and it is in the belly of the whale that the Bible tells us, and this is a shame, it tells us that he cried by reason of his affliction. And this is what we interpret as being the repentance of Jonah. Um, I submit to you today that he should have been crying by reason of his conviction. Um, but he's in the belly of a, uh, I, I just imagine it as being a smelly, gruesome, watery grave. And by reason of his affliction, he finally cries unto the Lord. And even though this repentance of Jonah seems to be half-hearted, um, and how many times has our Been half-hearted. The Lord responds because He's a merciful God. And He causes, it's it's kind of comical if you can picture it in detailed form. He causes um, the whale. The Bible says it spat up um, Jonah. And as a kid, I imagined the hole on top of a whale. Um, I imagined Jonah shooting up through the hole and gloriously ending up on the shore. Um, first of all, we don't know if it was a whale. We know that it was a great fish, the Bible says. Might have have been a whale, might have been a a megalodon. Could have been a lot of things. And and this beautiful picture of him being spat up is not a picture of him being uh, shot up through the blowhole of a whale. It's likely something uh, much uh, grosser than that. If you can picture this great fish, whatever it was, spitting up Jonah and here by this time we imagine that Jonah should be humble and we find that this is not the case. Um, The Bible is explicit to tell us that it's a three days journey into Nineveh. Um, But we know from the scriptural account that Jonah doesn't travel for three days and then give the word. He travels one day. The Bible says, um, and so we imagine that he's probably not in the central part of Nineveh. He's probably somewhere on the outskirts where there are less people, and um, and he decides here to give the message. And it you know you wonder if he was repentant um, because he's seeming to avoid the the duty of of going. the the central point of Nineveh and making sure that as many people as possible hear this message. And um, he he tells them this. Um, He says, um, your city is going to be destroyed. And there's no mention of God. There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of turning their ways. He just simply says, Your city is going to be destroyed. What a beautiful message from the prophet. When there's no way of escape presented, there's no way out, it's going to be destroyed, the end, period. And something funny happens. I don't think Jonah was expecting this to happen. The Bible tells us this. The people repented. Now, I want to note, these weren't the people of God. These were pagans. These were people that would have struggled with a reference for repentance. And the people repent, and the Bible says the king repents. And mind you, Jonah still has only half-heartedly repented. But the people repent, and the, the wicked king repents. And the Bible's even clear to tell us that the cows repent. They put, they put sackcloth on the cows, and the cows participated in the repentance um you're in trouble if the cows can hear god and you can't and and here the prophet of god has has rejected god's word and uh finally in the third chapter we find that jonah realizes that because of this repentance that god was going to be merciful and um Jonah becomes angry at the Lord, and the Lord asks him um, why he's angry, and uh, we find out his initial reason for not going to Nineveh. Um, he says it clearly that he didn't go to Nineveh, and he says this in a mocking tone toward the Lord, and you can, you can read it later, I don't, I don't want to keep. But he says it in a mocking tone toward the Lord where where he he says, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew you're merciful. And Jonah's issue with the mercy of God was that God was allowed to be merciful, but God wasn't allowed to be merciful to Nineveh. Nineveh, they were enemies of God. Nineveh, they were pagans. Nineveh, they were the capital of Assyria. And he refused to go to Nineveh in fear that God was sending him as a messenger of mercy. It's not that he didn't believe in the mercy of God. He believed in the selective mercy of God. Um, I, I heard a statement the other day that talked about... Um, self-designated guardians of the mercy of God uh, in other words uh, people that feel that it is in their jurisdiction to decide who becomes a recipient of God's mercy and who does not become a recipient of God's mercy and we find that, that Jonah didn't want God to be merciful and we we find him in the next um, scene if you will um is sitting uh, on, at a vantage point where he can see the city below. Um, it's common of self-righteous people to look down on the people that God's giving mercy to. And he places himself on a vantage point, looking down on the city, and he's pouting. Um, you'd think by the time he's swallowed by a whale, spat up by a whale, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that by this time he would have learned the lesson and not questioned God. But, um, this is not the case. He is pouting, and he's sitting in the sunlight. He finds a what the Bible calls a booth, um, some some form of shelter from the sun, and and the Bible tells us that the Lord there had put what's translated as a gourd, and the gourd um, it became a form of shelter that sheltered Jonah from the sun. Um, this was likely a Castor oil plant. It's a vine of sorts, and, and they would call the fruit of a castor oil plant, they call it a castor bean. Um, when they were translating this, they the, the closest thing um, in an English understanding is a, is a vine gourd. And uh, this gourd became a form of shelter, and the Bible tells us that Jonah was well pleased with the gourd. And so well pleased that it had sheltered him from the sun. Um, Jonah was pretty concerned about his own well-being as opposed to the well-being of others. Um, He falls asleep. And he wakes up in the morning and he realizes that the gourd is no longer um, protecting him from the sun. It has withered. And the Bible tells us that God had sent a worm into the gourd or, or maybe into the, the vine or the roots. We know that God sent a worm. And when he wakes up, he's angry again. He's mad again at God. The Lord asks him a second time. The first time he didn't answer. The Lord asks him a second time, What, what do you have cause to be angry? And of course, this self-righteous prophet goes down the list with God. A matter of fact, I do have a reason to be angry. And he's extremely upset that his precious gourd was no longer there. That's the reason for Jonah's anger. Mind you, he just left Nineveh, where now he's angry at God that God didn't spare Nineveh. But here, or rather, he's angry at God that God did spare Nineveh. And here, he's angry at God that God didn't spare the gourd. And the Lord says to him, if you're angry, if you're upset that I didn't spare the gourd. Can't you understand how I feel about my people, about these people that, that chose repentance can't you understand that if you wanted the gourd to be spared, can't you understand that I wanted these people to be spared? We know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Um, I will tell you today that uh, this might be my opinion, but I think there's scriptural evidence for it. I think it's clear what the worm represented in the story. Um, we don't have to question what fruit represents. The Bible's clear about fruit. It's clear about the necessity of fruitfulness. It tells us it goes down the list uh, of the fruit of the spirit in a New Testament context. Um, so we understand the significance of the fruit. Um, but but it was clear to tell us, and and the Bible doesn't spare detail. The the detail's there for a reason. It tells us that God sent the worm. And I think God sent the worm as sort of a a mirror to expose Jonah's self-righteousness. I think think the worm in Jonah's fruit could have very well been self-righteousness. was pleased with the fruit, so as long as the fruit was for his own benefit. Um, He was pleased with the fruit, so as long as the fruit um, was not a participant in forgiving people that he refused to forgive. And we, as the people of God, have to be careful that in the midst of our fruitfulness and, 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 Today, you are a fruitful people. Um, Fruitfulness is not productivity. Um, Fruitfulness is is clear what it is. It's it's joy. It's love. It's peace. It's long-suffering. It's gentleness. And and it's temperance. And it's meekness. And it's faith. Um, Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And... I'll tell you that the way that we're going to reach the world is not our productivity. Oftentimes people reference fruitfulness and they use it synonymously with productivity. The way we're going to reach the world is not rooted in productivity. The evangelistic mechanism of the people of God is built into the fruit. Let let, let, let me be clear in what I mean by that. Genesis, when it first um, introduces us to fruit, it it is specific to tell us it's fruit whose seed is in itself. Um, A tomato is debatedly a fruit, and it's debatedly a fruit because it has seed in it. And so there are those that have debated, well, maybe a tomato isn't categorized as a vegetable, Maybe, I hope this is okay today, I promise I'm going somewhere. Maybe a tomato is categorized as a fruit. The the nature of fruit, fruit by definition, has seed in it. Um, it's it's the fruit whose seed is in itself. Um, the, the Bible tells us that Joseph was a fruitful bough. He, in other words, he was a vine full of fruit whose branches went over the wall. Um, I, I love that way of describing Joseph's fruitfulness. The the reality of these elements of fruit that the scripture spells out for us, be it uh, temperance, or be it faith, or be it gentleness, um, these are not internal mechanisms for the benefit of me and my three. Um, like, like Joseph, we're supposed to be fruitful boughs. Um, the, the, these, these branches are supposed to spring out and go over the wall. And, and, and in order to fill the world with fruit, um, we've got to understand that the fruit um, contains within itself the seed necessary to, to bring forth other fruit. Um, This isn't hard to understand of the opposite. When you're in an environment that someone is angry, um, you can try to reject it for a few moments. You can try to lighten up the atmosphere. Um, But you'll find inevitably that the others in the room will become irritable and angry. Um, If you place yourself in environments uh, where there is backbiting and bitterness, um, you're going to end up bitter and and backbitten. Um, it's it's because the reality of this is that the seed is in itself. And if we lack the fruit of the Spirit, then we're contributors um, to these realities in the world of Brokenness and bitterness and anger and frustration. And and have you ever driven in traffic and or gone to the store and had an interaction and you've just asked yourself, or maybe you've stated, why are people so angry? What are they so mad about? The sun's shining, it's a beautiful day. Why are they so angry? They're angry because the seed is in itself. Because someone was angry that caused someone to be angry, that caused someone to be angry, and this individual is angry. Someone was bitter, who made someone else bitter, who made someone else bitter. And it's not just suddenly who made someone else better, it's who made someone else bitter. And the reality of the fruit of the Spirit is that these fruits have a self-replicating nature. Um, I, I want to be clear that these are not fruits of discipline; these are fruits of the Spirit. And so, um, I'm I'm admonishing you today regarding these fruits, not so that you can go home and just radically attempt these fruits. I'm admonishing you today so that we can remember the necessity of the Spirit, because without the Spirit, I will not bear these fruits. Jesus said, "I am the vine, and ye are the branches." Told us to abide in Him, and that without Him we couldn't bear any fruit. Um, so, if I want to showcase love, if I want to have joy, if I want to be long-suffering or gentle or 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 or, or, or good uh, with people, if I want to be meekness or temperate and not quick to anger or quick to be frustrated. These are not mechanisms of my will and my discipline. These are realities. uh, These are products of the spirit. But if we will rise to the challenge of allowing ourselves to bear this fruit, and here's how we arise to that challenge. We stay connected to the vine. I want to be clear about what the vine is. Um, the, clear, the, the vine is not good intention or good will. The, the vine is Jesus. Uh, it, it might feel elementary today, but you are um, men and women as much as I am a man. And I'll tell you that we oftentimes attempt to do these things on our own and we neglect prayer, and we neglect the reading of the word. I hope no one today would act like that. this has never been you. Um, and, and, and we try to go about the production of fruit through productivity. Uh, the Lord isn't looking to see how much you're capable of doing. Um, go do things for the glory of God. That's good. That's not fruitfulness. But if you allow yourself to incubate the seed of the Word of God in your heart, it will birth fruit. And this is not separate from being filled with the Spirit. These are fruits of the Spirit. I cannot claim that I am full of the Holy Ghost and I've received the Holy Ghost if I'm not gentle with people. I cannot claim that I'm full of the Holy Ghost, if I lack joy, if I'm one of those people that every time you're around me I'm just mumbling under my breath and angry at the world, that's not joy. I, I can't claim to be um, full of the Holy Ghost if I am not temperate and, and meek and, and that is something that comes from the Spirit of God. It's not something I can put on. That's, that's a mask. That's, that's, that's a mere attempt and, and a bad one at that. It's not something that I'm capable of putting on. It is the byproduct of the spirit of the Lord. But in the midst of being producers of fruit, we've got to be careful that we don't allow the worm of self-righteousness to rot in the fruit that God has placed in this world. Jonah's problem was that the fruit became about him. The fruit was for his shade. The fruit was for his comfort. And he cared more about the comforting fruit that was above his head than he did about the salvation of the enemies of God. I don't have enemies. Let me be clear today. The battle is not mine. It is the Lord's. Your enemy is not your brother. Your enemy is not your sister. Let me say this today. Our enemies are not churches down the road. Jesus said that if they're not against us, they're for us. So I'm not rebuking spirits and praying against churches down the road. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be fruitful and I'm going to multiply. And I've don't, I don't have to shove that in people's face. Well, I'll tell you what, you got it wrong and I got it right. They will know you by your fruit. Who in the world am I to condemn the world if I am not gentle, if I am not temperate, if I am not meek, if I am not long-suffering with people, if I'm not faithful, if I'm not gentle, if I'm not... Are you hearing me today? The Lord is not asking you to condemn the world around you and tell them, "Hey, listen, we've got it right and you've got it wrong." They will know you by your fruit. So when they're looking for love, they're going to remember where they saw love coming from. And 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 the world is hungry. I want you to understand that today. The world is starving. And they're starving because of a lack of fruit. So if we're going to feed hungry people, we're not going to feed them with worms of self-righteousness that have rotted the fruit of God. This isn't about what a good person I am. This is about what a good God that he is. And there's none good but God alone. Hallelujah. Did, did you know that if, if there's something that you find good in me, that it's not me at all? It's God. We say, well, he's a good guy. I'm going uh, spoiler to, alert, spoiler alert this morning, he's not a good guy. He's a good God. And you ought to see what that guy would be like without God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. If you can picture that, imagine trying to clean up something with a filthy rag. I've done a little bit of car detailing. There's been a time or two that I've grabbed a used rag without realizing. And then I've gone to wipe a clean surface to give it the final touch. And I've wiped across the surface... Only to realize that I have smeared and rubbed into it more filth than what was there to begin with. If I am trying to make this, if, if I am trying to live this walk with God by my own righteousness and by my own ability, all I am doing is introducing more filth than what was there to begin with. I'm not one to normally, I don't like to, to interject things into scripture. But when there is scriptural basis, it's okay to give an opinion. And it is my opinion that if we want to have what we would call revival, and let's be clear what we mean when we say revival. We mean dead people living again. And, 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 and that's in a spiritual sense, people that have fallen away, people that have never known God, even the decay in my own heart being revived unto the Lord. If we want to experience that, I think the story of Jonah clearly outlines four things that we have to have. First of all, we find that Jonah was disobedient. If we want to see the people of God revived, and if we want to see the world around us saved, we have to be obedient and sometimes that obedience is going to force you to forgive people that you don't want to forgive amen but i've got to be i've got to forgive so that i can be forgiven and i've got to give them the same degree of grace that god has given me i'm not looking down my nose at people saying well They had it coming to them, and I hope they get everything they deserve. God didn't give me everything that I deserve, and I hope I don't have it coming to me. So I've got to be obedient when the Lord calls me to love people that are hard to love and forgive people that maybe haven't even asked for forgiveness. Well, I'll forgive them when they say sorry. Sorry. No, I'm not going to forgive them when I say sorry. They asked Jesus, "How many times do I forgive?" And they straightened their tie, "7 times 7?" <laughs> they were trying to impress him. Should I forgive him? Forgive them 7 times 7? Jesus said, "No, 7 times 70." In other words, you've got to continually forgive. Some days it's going to hurt. And you might have forgiven them yesterday, but you've got to wake up and forgive them today. Hallelujah. And sometimes they're not going to say sorry, and sometimes they're even going to do it again. And I've got to wake up and forgive them again. I want to be clear that our forgiveness is not justifying the action. We don't forgive people because we're, 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 we're removing the weight of their action from them we're we're forgiving people because we're removing the burden of unforgiveness off of ourselves and when i forgive i am able to be forgiven Some people walk around in so much condemnation and guilt, and it's not because they're unwilling to forgive themselves. It's because they're unwilling to forgive others, and they're carrying the burden of someone else's condemnation. I can't carry that burden for them. I've got to give that burden to the Lord. So when you feel the pain, because you will feel the pain. Paul carried a thorn in his flesh. When you feel the pain, don't give root to bitterness. In that moment, lift up your hands, open up your mouth, and do as Jesus said. Pray for your enemy. Love them that use you. Love them that persecute you. It didn't just say use you. despitefully use you you run into spiteful people, but we've got to love them. We've got to forgive them. We can't talk about them and and do you know what they've done and and do you know how they hurt me and do you know what they've done to me? I've got to forgive them so I can be forgiven. Hallelujah. Paul talked about, he was talking about all of these, these gifts that the Lord gives us, but he said this. He said that if he has not charity, that's the word for love. If he has not love, that his tongues, that's, that's speaking in other tongues, it becomes as sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. In other words, if he has not love, that's nothing more than noise. That's not the spirit of God. So I've got to check myself and make sure that my tongue is not disassociated with the love of God that is rooted in my heart by his spirit. If I'm going to speak in tongues, I've got to love my enemy. If I'm, got, if I'm going to speak in tongues, I've got to forgive those that have hurt me. If I'm going to speak in tongues, I've got to be willing to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. I'm not saying this this morning because I'm making a political statement i'm I'm not um, I'm not making I'm not uh, making a stance or a position, but i've I've wondered before about the death penalty um, and I'm not um, sure one way or the other. I do know that the Bible is clear under an old Testament paradigm that it is an eye for an eye. it is a tooth for a tooth. Um, but here's also what I understand. I understand that Romans tells me that the wage of sin is death. That means if anybody is deserving of the penalty of death, and I'm talking in a spiritual sense, I'm talking about the fact that sin leads to spiritual death and not eternal life, but it leads to death. If anybody is guilty of that penalty, it's me, because all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus outlined it for me that if I've been angry with my brother without a cause, I'm guilty of murder. If I've looked on a woman with lust, I am guilty of adultery. And we read these things and we wonder how in the world we're going to live up to it. Let me answer that today. You haven't. You haven't and you're not going to. I'm not excusing trying I'm not saying don't try. I'm just saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm way off my notes today, but that's okay. And you don't have anywhere to go because you don't have church tonight. The, 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 I I, I just want to pause for a second. I hope this is okay. I think I'm teaching a Bible study to somebody this morning. But I I, I do feel, I feel led of the Lord. And I, I, struggle a lot of times to understand the law of the Old Testament. And uh, rightfully so. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to understand. There's parts of it that are easy to understand. Um, for example, honor thy father and mother. It's easy to understand. Um, don't eat um, creatures in the sea that don't have gills and fins. Well, I like my shrimp cocktail. Um, don't It's another way of saying boil or cook. Don't see the calf in its mother's milk. Um, You'll find today that devout Jewish people, when they cook a steak, they don't cook a steak in butter because it's seething um, a calf in its mother's milk. Uh, We can struggle to understand these things. And certainly there's things there, you know, that we can find parallel – all scripture is profitable, and so we can read that. I've heard somebody teach before that seething a calf in its mother's milk is um, creating the environment for a new child of God. Uh, that is a um, toxic, a boiling environment, and, and there's 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 stuff there we could you could get into all day looking at individual laws. Um, here's the reality: Moses had led the people of God to the mount. And they were to go up before the Lord and receive the law. And they heard the thunderings, and they saw the lightnings, and they saw the smoke. And in fear, and how often have we done this? And we do this in church. We, we see the, the noise, the worship, the, and we separate ourselves. They said, they said, Moses, you go up and you talk to him. You come back down, and you tell us what he said. Moses was never supposed to be the mediator. These people were going to receive the law of God. And I propose to you that it was always in the heart of God for that law to be written upon the tablets of their heart. It was going to be direct. So in the moments that they should have been upon the mount receiving the law of God. Moses is on the mount. He, He comes off the mount. The Bible tells us that the Lord with his own finger had written the laws into the tablets. This, this is what we call the Ten Commandments. And Moses gets off of the mountain, and when he gets down to a vantage point where he can see the people of God, they're naked and dancing around an idol. And if they would have gone up to the mount, been in the presence of God, um, I think the Lord could have done a work in their heart. Uh, but but instead they fall into idolatry and wickedness and 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 I don't know what Aaron was doing, but uh, Aaron was somehow misled, and and Moses gets down off the mountain, he sees the people, and in his anger he breaks the first commandments, he breaks the set. The Bible says um, this is not a coincidence. Um, the Old Testament law, the set that was given to us is inadequate because we continually fall into sin. And the law of God that's not built upon relationship will always lead to sin. He breaks the first set. He goes back up the mountain, and this time the Lord told him to write what had already been given him. And so he writes another set. The first set was written by the And the second set was written by Moses. And it was the same. The author was different. It was was identical to the first set. And he gets down off the mount. He teaches them these Ten Commandments. And these people are so inherently sinful. That's really what we are without God. We are inherently sinful. That we find that throughout the Old Testament these ten simple commandments, and, and and I'll even say this, they're really two simple commandments. Jesus tells them that it, Jesus tells us it's all fulfilled in loving God and loving our brother. They are so inherently sinful that what was given as ten commandments that were really two commandments became six hundred and eleven commandments. He had to be so specific with them. And I'm talking things like this. There's a law that says that that a man is not to seduce his mother's sister. You would think that that is obvious. It wasn't. 611 laws. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Wash your hands before you eat. And don't do this. 611 laws. The problem with this is they were under the law of Moses. It was supposed to be the law of God. And the Bible tells us that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So here's what he did. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And so the nature of the law is revealed on the Sermon on the Mount. When he stands there and reciting the law, he proves to these self-righteous people that they have committed every they've committed every act that the law prohibits. They sit there and I straighten my tie. They I guess they straighten their robe. And 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 they well I've never I've I've never committed adultery. Well well I I've never murdered. That's my um Pharisee voice. And Jesus absolutely shreds their paradigm. He said, You're missing it. You you're absolutely Missing it. If you've hated your brother without a cause. He goes through the ten. If you've hated your brother without a cause, you're guilty of murder. If you looked on a woman with lust, you're guilty of adultery. You know what he was doing? He was exposing to them that we have all transgressed the law. Every single one of us have transgressed the law except for Jesus. Jesus. And so then Jesus' summary of the law is that the whole law is summarized and rooted in loving God and loving our brother. And sometimes our brother is our enemy. Loving God and loving one another. That's the whole premise of the law. The problem is we can't live the law because we break it. And so how in the world am I going to live the law? I live the law when the law is written upon my heart. The law is written upon my heart by the Spirit of the Lord, not by my discipline, not by my self-will, not not by my desire to be a good person. The law is written in my heart by the Spirit of God. And without the Spirit of God, I'm making it of none effect. I'm not living in the resurrecting, overcoming power of Jesus' death, burial, life, and resurrection, I'm living according to my own accord. And if I'm living according to my own, and we try this all the time, it's a worm that's in our fruit. It's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a pretty way of saying no righteousness. There's no righteousness in me. And when you get to heaven, I want to be clear about what's going to happen. I'm coming to a close quickly um who's playing piano today just come up and my dad says bring them hope that means that means 20 more minutes i promise this means 5 That we we've got this concept that we're going to get to heaven and and that the lord's going to open a book and that book is going to contain everything that i've done Now, here's what I want you to understand. Scripturally, that book exists. That's the record of my life. That's Spencer's book of life. And when you open that book, you're going to see every single place that I've made a mistake. That's Spencer's book of life. But Spencer's book of life is not the book that's opened to see if I'm able to get into heaven. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Not me. I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. And if, 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 if Spencer's book is opened up at the gate and they read that, they're going to realize that I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. So he's not entering here. But when the psalmist was writing that, that was messianic. He was talking about Jesus. opening Spencer's book of life. They're opening the Lamb's book of life. The difference in between Spencer's book of life and the Lamb's book of life is Spencer's book of life showcases every moment that I've transgressed the law. But the Lamb's book of life is the record of his sinless, spotless, blameless life. He never transgressed the law. And so we ask ourselves, well, how in the world is that going to save me? That's his life. Jacob goes before his father, and his brother was the firstborn, is Esau. And Esau was supposed to receive a blessing of his father. And the Bible tells us Esau was a hairy man. Uh, just one of those scriptural, it's going to put that in there assume it doesn't say that of Jacob so we assume Jacob wasn't and his father's eyes have grown dim and it's he's he's in his later years of life and he's getting ready to proclaim a blessing over his firstborn son and Jacob goes in there and what he's done is he's put on coats of skin skins of animals animal furs and his father in his dim vision reaches out and he feels the fur. He feels the fur on Jacob and he said, oh, this is my son Esau. This is Esau. Esau, I love you. Esau, I wanna bless you. And he pronounces a blessing over Esau. And, 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 and now Jacob has received that blessing because of the covering that he's put on. Here's what's going to happen in heaven as many have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. When I get to heaven, it's just like Jacob put on the skin, and because he put on the skin, he received the blessing that was supposed to be Esau's blessing. Jesus is blessed. Goodness and mercy follows him all of the days of his life. That's not me, that's him. He's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord. He's going to dwell in his holy place. He has clean hands. I don't. He has a pure heart. I don't. But when I've been baptized in his name, what I'm doing is I'm putting on a covering. So when the father reaches out, it's not me. It's Jesus that he feels in me and Jesus that he feels on me. I've got to repent of my sin. Hear me today. I've got to repent of my sin. I've got to make the decision that I'm not going to live the way that I'm living. I've got to repent. And I've got to be baptized because when I'm baptized, I've put on Christ. But I'm not just baptized. I'm baptized in His name because not only am I covered by Him, I'm named by Him. It's not Spencer Jordan when they open up the Lamb's Book of Life. They're looking for the name of Jesus. And if I want my name to be in the Lamb's book of life, it's got to be the name of Jesus. It's not a list of your name, your name and your name and your name and your name and my name. That's our book of life. It's the Lamb's book of life. So he's going to open up that book and say, hold on, hold on. Is your name here? Jesus, you can come in. Jesus, you can ascend into the hill of the Lord. Jesus, you can dwell in his holy place. I've, I've got I've to repent. I've got to be." even attempt to get to heaven one thing's clear my attempt to cross off the list and make sure that i'm doing everything that the bible has commanded me to do that's not going to work i've got to have his law written upon my heart as the scripture says the law is written upon my heart by his spirit this is why when they ask peter what what do we got to do to be saved you've got to repent You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And when you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you're going to be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. When they were filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, they spake with tongues. Their name was changed. Their covering was changed. Even the sound of their voice was changed. I've got to have Jesus in me. I've got to have Jesus over me. I've got to have Jesus all around me. I've got to have Jesus in how I treat others, and how I talk, and how I walk, and what I see and what I hear, it's got to be Jesus. I've got to have his goodness. I've got to have his meekness. I've got to have his faith. Stop holding on to your own faith. Grab on to the faith of Jesus. Stop grabbing a hold of your own temperance. Grab on to the temperance of Jesus. I invite you young and old, new, new person, or maybe you've been here your whole life. I invite you to come and recommit. God, I need you. If you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, there's water here. What hinders you? Come on, let's not stand around. Open up your mouth and talk to the Lord. God, I repent. Lord, I can't have the